a conversation about the legal issues that matter to you. This is Stanford Legal with Pam Carlin and Joe Bankman. Welcome to Stanford Legal, where we look at the cases, questions, conflicts, and legal stories that affect us all every day. I'm Pam Carlin, along with Joe Bankman. Hi, Joe. Hi, Pam, and welcome back. Thank you. It's good to it's good to be here. Now, Joe, in addition to being a radio host, a tax expert, and all of the other things you are, you're also a practicing psychologist, and you're a digital mental health guy as well. Um, I did not realize until I started looking into this that you, in addition to your practice, are involved in something called the Center for M Squared Health. And then I tried to figure out, like, M Squared, was that like M&M's or Marilyn Manson? And it turns out, no, I think it means mobile mental. Am I, am I right about That's that, That's absolutely right, Pam. So tell us a little bit about it. Well, you know, Pam, most people are never going to go to a therapist. It's too much, and frankly, they don't want to. But everybody's got some problems. And the great attraction to digital mental health that you could get on your PC or even better yet on your phone is that it's always there at your convenience and it's infinitely scalable. So if we get the right program for anxiety or depression, Joe uh, Ruzak is going to talk about PTSD, we might be able to treat a million people. Yeah, but one of the things I mean, I teach this in my first year torts class is there's a very famous case that involves a psychiatrist in California who didn't warn somebody that his patient was going to kill her. And she did. And there's a famous case about this. And so mental health raises a lot of legal issues. And today we have three folks with us in addition to you, who's our special permanent guest in that sense, uh, that we're going to be talking to about mental health issues. Um, We'll be joined later in the show by Allison Darcy, who's a lecturer in psychiatry and behavioral sciences here at Stanford and the CEO and founder of a mental health app called Wobot. I guess it's for people who are unhappy. Uh, They call it your charming robot friend who's ready to listen. And how much better than most people we know is that? Um, And uh, here in the studio, we're joined by Zach Harned, who's a Stanford Law School student uh, and also doing graduate work in symbolic systems. Uh, He is an uh, expert in psychology as well and is president of the Stanford Artificial Intelligence and Law Society and a senior fellow with Brainstorm. And then we're joined uh, by Joe Ruzek, who runs the who ran the Veterans Administration's training center for PTSD and is a leader in digital mental health. Um, so we're so glad you're here with us. And Joe, take it from there. Well, I'm going to first of all welcome my my old friend Joe, the other Joe. And Joe, you and I have worked together for years on digital mental health. Start us off, did I say it right to give the pitch for why we think it's so important? Yeah, I think um, the overarching reason is when you said we could reach a lot of people who might not be willing to come in and see a shrink or come in for mental health care in any way. But I also will argue that the digital technologies we have now could make traditional face-to-face care more effective by getting outside of the office and reaching into the life of the person. It's a great point, Joe, and we'll talk about some of those. But to jump in, let's talk about something you did at the VA. Name a mental health app coach or app. I'm giving away the name Mm -hmm. of it. And tell us a little bit about it. Well, um, I think we saw the possibility um, that you've just shared, and that is the ability to reach many veterans with PTSD. Lots of veterans come into the VA for care, but there are many out in the community. So we thought, let's, let's build something. So the first thing we did was something called 
PTSD coach, which is a kind of educational and coping tool for veterans in managing their PTSD and any time they're distressed. And that really took off. It, it's been downloaded more than 400,000 times in 96 countries now. So there's there's a real interest in getting these kinds of tools to people. And so what, could I just ask, like, what would it look like from the user's point of view? So the person downloads the app, and then what happens? They go into it, very simple to use. They uh, can, first of all, um, assess their own levels of PTSD. There's a validated questionnaire, 17 items. They answer it. It will give them individualized feedback about where they stand in terms of the seriousness of any difficulties they might have. And they also have the option of asking it to come on back and continue to assess it so they can see how their PTSD symptoms may shift over time. But there's also a learn psychoeducational function on there. It teaches them things they need to learn. There's a coping skills tool which helps them cope in different ways. And there's a social support function of linking them with various kinds of social support and helping services. And Joe, uh, I know one of the things you're working now is to expand something like that for everyone. Yeah. And who, this is called going to be called eCourage, I think. And who else would get it? Well, we've been thinking about the context here in our conversation of the United States and mental health care for people with PTSD and other mental health problems. But I think where there's a, a gigantic opportunity is globally. You know, the, the burden of mental health globally far exceeds the the uh, life burden of most physical health conditions. There are hundreds of millions of people around the world, especially in low-income countries, who experience tremendous adversity, are depressed, and have difficult lives. As we all know, um, phones are becoming ubiquitous, and it's thought that most people in the world will actually have a smartphone in, a, in about 10 years from now. So we could help literally millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of people manage their daily stresses and their problems. What uh, it's, it's really fantastic. I find it thrilling when you talk about this, Joe. Uh, we know some of these work because we've done studies on many of these programs. Let's talk about the problems of them not working. Why doesn't? Why isn't this just a panacea? Why don't we close up shop? We being people that like me that see clients one on one. Well, I don't think there's going to be um, a threat to our industries in the West of helping people for a very simple reason. That is, you know, if you ever make a New Year's resolution, it's tough to get yourself to follow through with it, even though you know it's a good idea. Using phones are no, are no different. Um, phones require a person to go onto them, use them regularly, pull them out when they're worried. So typically in the field of technology research, it's a consistent finding has been that unguided self-help, when you simply fling a technology at somebody, works much less well than guided self-help, where there's some kind of human coaching or encouragement. Because people simply drop out of using the tool. They don't use it enough to get the therapeutic dose. And when you talk about the kind of therapeutic dose, that raises the question that I had thought that one of the big changes in modern mental health had been the move away from the talking cures to the pharmacological cures. And now you're going back to something that's much more like a talking cure in a way. Absolutely. Uh, I'm not one of the devotees of the biological model of all this stuff and solving it with little pills or brain stimulation, although that may be valuable. Um, the, the most effective psychotherapies for problems, and 
and indeed for simpler things like stress management, are in fact talking cures and teaching people skills for managing their own lives differently. And I think what the what the phones do is it puts a very valuable coping tool for how they can manage and understand and do things about their own problems in living. Well, you know, we're going to talk more about what you're doing and more about the problems, and we're certainly going to focus on the legal issues. But I thought from the VA, it might be nice to change it up a little bit and have our uh, listeners and viewers uh, hear from uh, a recent Stanford startup. So I think after uh, a short uh, message about yeah. our station, yeah. we'll do just that. So this is Stanford Legal, and today we're talking about digital mental health, and we've been talking with Joe Ruzek, who ran the VA uh, mental health uh, mobile app. Um, so we'll put on our headsets, um, and uh, we're going to talk, uh, as I mentioned earlier in the show, uh, to Allison about a Wobot. And Allison, uh, first of all, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good afternoon to you. Good afternoon. And tell us a little bit about this charming robot who's going to listen to you. Well, Wobot is an emotional assistant that delivers a sort of a DIY version of cognitive behavioral therapy um, through short daily conversations that are text-based. So just as um, Joe was just... um, saying there, um, we know that a guided self-help version is, is of um, certain approaches to therapy are more effective than just pure self-help. And so Wobot is like a guide, but an automated guide, which is, which is really sort of new for this field. So how does cognitive behavioral, behavioral therapy actually work? Well, CBT, as it's known for short, is really based on the idea that our thoughts create our moods rather than the other way around. And so CBT teaches people how to first um, externalize negative thoughts, second, identify distortions therein, and then third, um, asks people to restructure or rewrite the thought over and over again um, and until such time that um, people actually start to feel better as they challenge their own negative assumptions that they've always thought were true up until that point. So which kinds of negative assumptions does Wobot help people get over? Well, it's interesting because, you know, according to the original theory, there are really specific distortions that are associated with, you know, the the type of mood. So, for example, um, people who feel anxious will almost always be oriented around the future. You know, what if I make a fool of myself? What if I, you know, um, do a really terrible job? I'm going to fall off this ledge. Um, So you can sort of detect it in language. Um, whereas, you know, people with something like depression might have a lot of all or nothing thinking, I'm a total loser, I, you know, things are never going to change. Um, and so they're, they're quite identifiable. And there's a, you know, a group of about 10 to 12 that CBT th- thinks about a lot. And so Wobot really just guides people through that process of identifying distortions and then invites them to restructure the thought. And that's the really powerful moment. Um, that we want to encourage people to do as much as possible. And we know actually um, predicts better outcomes the more they do that. So I asked Joe this question earlier, and I want to ask you the question as well, which is just walk me through if you were a user of Wobot and you're one of those people who says, you know, I am totally worthless. I, I always screw up. I never get things right. What does Wobot say to you? 
Right, so I, th- I think what Wobble will do is every day kind of checks in with you, like a text from a friend, and just says, hey, how's your day going, you know, and if you are feeling badly in that moment, Wobot will invite you to um, to see if you want to ch- challenge your thinking, if you want help with that moment. And if you do, um, Wobot will ask, what's the situation? And he tries to get a handle on what, what's the nature of the problem this person is dealing with, whether it's you know, a relationship problem, are they worried about making their rent? Um, is it, you know, is it something going on at work? And then based on the, his understanding of the problem, will guide the user through a kind of the appropriate technique that's, you know, um, drawing from the full repertoire of techniques that we have from both cognitive behavioral therapy and also some from dialectical behavior therapy and interpersonal therapy as well. Um, and it's just a very step-by-step um, sort of respectful, slow process um, that ultimately ends in about three quarters of people feeling better at that level of that single conversation. Uh, this is Stanford Legal, and today we're talking about digital mental health. We were just talking with Alison Darcy, and we've also been talking with Joe Ruzek. Alison, I'm wondering if the kinds of things Wobot says, and here it's it's a little bit of a disingenuous uh, a question because I subscribe to, to Wobot and I've used it enough to get a sense of what it does. And it's you I, are not totally worthless, Joe. <laughs> that's what my charming robot friend says too, Pam. So thank you. And uh, uh, Wobot's quite believable. It's quite charming. It is AI based. But I'm guessing what it would do for Pam's question is. I ask her to challenge some of her statements. Is there another? Do you think you're really totally worthless? Is there any evidence that you would you could cite in the alternative? Yeah, I, I wonder also, are there people for whom, uh, this goes back to where you introduced us, uh, Joe Bankman and Joe Ruzek, I'd love to hear from you on this as well. Are there people for whom they're interpersonal skills are sufficiently weak or their relationship to others is sufficiently problematic that it's actually better to be dealing with a disembodied voice than with a than with a human therapist well i'll take a quick crack of that and maybe listen to allison's thoughts too but certainly a potential advantage for some people in technology is that um, they don't have to talk to the person, so the embarrassment factor is not there. So there's some evidence that sometimes people are more honest and more open with a machine than they are with with a person. Um, and most of what's offered on these technologies is pretty basic. It's a first level of self-care, so it, it, um, it has low potential, I think, in most cases for harm and therefore can be stepped up and added added to with human support if it's needed. Yeah, that's, that's right. I, I mean, there are some studies that have looked at this empirically, and we know that um, for the most part, people find it easier to share and disclose things to an AI than a human. And so that actually runs across um, all people. In our early uh, conversations with young people, we would always ask this question to both um, you know, young women and young men, whether there was anything that they would be afraid to share with another person. And it was really interesting, certainly skewed towards males being much more inhibited in that way and would commonly say, yeah, of course, there's lots of things I would never, n- never share with someone else. And so what we're trying to do with Wobot is reduce that friction towards somebody being able to get something off their chest because 
what we've noticed is when they do, it's it's ultimately like practice. It's it is their first experience of externalizing something that has been really internal before, um, and we think that sort of encourages people to then subsequently share with with other humans. Yeah, that's one of the things that kind of interested me um, was whether Wobot or the program that you ran, Joe, turned out to be a sort of gateway drug to people realizing that maybe they really would benefit from some serious therapy with a human therapist. Uh, We've built into most of our apps and some of the web programs that we've used um, guidance for people in thinking about helping them to determine whether they might wish to seek professional care. And one of the things we can do with these apps is educate them and sort of, um, you know, uh, make it less frightening to go for care by by helping people understand what really goes on there, which really is not frightening and is highly practical. So we do see it as a gateway of referral to care and just Quickly to say, also, um, the PTSD Coach app, if a person's in great um, distress, takes steps to link them with National Suicide Counseling Hotline. So, in fact, can quickly refer people for emergency care. You know, I'm going to, I know that our time is going to be limited uh, with you, Allison, in particular. So, that was such a great answer. I'm going to ask you a different question, Allison, and it is one I think you're going to like. I think our listeners and viewers would get a kick out of having Wobot advise them. So, like, how would they get it? And how much does it cost? Well, currently it is free, um, and they just download it from the from the app stores from it's with both iOS and Android right now. Well, that's great, and uh, we'll be back with more from our guests talking about mental health and mobile mental health and digital mental health next on Stanford Legal here on SiriusXM Insight One Twenty One. Learning about your rights and responsibilities in a changing world from some of the top legal experts in the country. You're listening to Stanford Legal on Sirius XM Insight. Welcome back to Stanford Legal, where we look at the cases, questions, conflicts, and legal stories that affect us all every day. I'm Pam Carlin, along with Joe Bankman. Pam, you know, one of the great things about teaching at Stanford Law School is the students we come in contact with. And today's guest, Zach Harnett, is an example of just how lucky we are. Zach comes to us with a background in clinical psychology. He knows some AI, knows CS, at least better than I ever will. Uh, He's worked a little bit in the digital mental health industry, including a little bit with Allison. He's been an RA of mine, but I really regard him as a peer. It's such a fast-moving world in the law-governing digital AI that if you asked me, who's the expert, I might refer you to Zach. Well, we're so lucky to have you on the show, Zach. And we're lucky to have you at Stanford. I mean, I'm starting to feel a little bit like Lou Gehrig. I feel like I'm the luckiest man on earth, (laughs) although I'm not a man and I'm not dying. So I I feel luckier, actually luckier. Um, So one of the things that we know is that the law interacts in all sorts of ways with mental health issues, ranging from the insanity defense to the duty of doctors to disclose threats from their patients and everything. And this brave new world of digital mental health is going to raise a lot of issues like this. So, you know, what happens if somebody says to Wobot, I, I, I'm, I'm feeling totally worthless? I mean, we heard Allison say, it's people saying, I feel totally worthless. There's nothing good about me. I'm going to end it all. What, what, what would a regular mental health professional be obligated to do under those circumstances? Yeah, so this is a great question. And thanks so much for having me on the show. 
Um, and this is something that's not particular to Wobot. You know, uh, large platforms are now having to consider this as a content moderation issue or a variety of other sort of mental health apps. Uh, as a, you know, sort of licensed professional, normally you have a number of obligations uh, depending on the severity. But one of the things that's often not commonly known is that there's a number of gradations of suicidal intent and ideation and oftentimes sort of leaping to the most extreme reaction, you know, of saying, oh, we need to hospitalize this person or something like that can be deleterious as there's often a, a, a area or sort of arena of normal kind of, uh, you know, instances of suicidal ideation in which exploration or further discussion or things like that are actually what would be most advantageous. And so if we have that reflected uh, in individuals, maybe we want these sort of online programs to do it as well. Yeah, I mean, one thing, Joe, that you said earlier in the in the uh, our discussion was that your app was set up so that if somebody made suicidal comments, it would prompt them or contact the National Suicide Hotline or the like. I mean, is that something that can be built into these apps? I think that a lot can be done. Interestingly, in the large healthcare systems where we've done our work, decision was taken to actually not gather this data. So in other words, um, there would be no responsibility for a healthcare professional to uh, notify anyone because in fact, they are not seeing that response. So PTSD coach, which I mentioned, has been pr pretty much a psychoeducational tool. Yes, if a person's in distress, it will make it easy for them to contact So um, like help. click here if you want to exactly, talk to a live. Exactly. But it's, it's yeah. keeping healthcare professionals within that healthcare system from having to be responsible from monitoring and interacting at all times of, uh, of the day and, and night. Right. And in a sense, Joe, that's, that's a downside of legal liability because, in fact, that's not ideal. We'd want to make it easier to monitor, in part to know how often people have these impulses, how to deal with them. We want What we really want is really good experience with people having these impulses to get the right response that Zach says, but we don't do it for fear of legal liability. But Zach, Wobot doesn't have that option, I think, because it's interactive. So PTSD coach doesn't have that same level of interactivity, and it can have a kind of hear no evil, see no scary. Mm -hmm. Wobot can't do that. Well, and, uh, you know, Wobot, like many other products, too, are very upfront in noting that this is not designed uh, to assist with people with high levels of suicidal ideation or severe levels of depression or things like that. Uh, but, yes, there's still a sort of responsibility issue of when something like this becomes clear, does the program make the appropriate referrals, like Joe had mentioned, you know, to a suicide hotline, which Wobot obviously does in those cases. So I was going to actually ask you about something else, which is earlier uh, in the broadcast, again, Joe, you had said one of the things that's great about these digital tools is people who would feel uncomfortable talking to a human being about some embarrassing thing, something maybe they shouldn't even be embarrassed about, but they are, uh, will feel comfortable talking to a digital assistant. But one of the things I would worry about is the way you read about things that people do online now is it's all gathered someplace and the mosaic theory of information means that they can gather, you know, you talked to, you talked to uh, Wobot and then right after that you went to an adult bookstore and then right after that you did this and, and, and so forth and so on. Is there any kind of uh, obligation on a program like Wobot to keep your data confidential or is it just whatever contract the makers of the app 
uh, put on the shrink wrap or the click wrap or whatever it's called now? This is a really important uh, question for the space in general, not just for Wobot, is how are we going to handle privacy? Because as you noted, you know, with the sort of mosaic theory of information, especially with the advent of machine learning, which has become really good at deducing the intimate from the relatively mundane. If you can get a set of these mundane facts, but then do this fancy analysis on them. Isn't there something recently, I read something about how um, people were being notified they were pregnant before they knew they were pregnant because of searches they had done, which tend to indicate that you're, I don't know, unusually fecund? Uh, yeah, yeah, so, so there's a number of these results, yeah, and they're always coming up. That's one of the fascinating ones. Uh, your likelihood of being uh, admitted to an ER also comes from search results. This just came up this week. Uh, and, and even more intimate pieces of your information, you know, the way that you type or swipe on your phone might reveal things about your mood. Um, you know, certain facial expressions or things might also sort of uh, detail your sentiment analysis and things like that. This is Stanford Legal. And today we're talking with Zach Harnett and Joe Ruzek about digital mental health. Joe? Zach, we're talking about, first of all, liability. And one of the interesting things, and I thought I'd just throw this out, is nobody really knows what the liability rules are in digital mental health. So you get some organizations, the VA, that as a kind of a scaredy cap mode, it plays it safe. It just doesn't store the information. You have other startups, and there's a lot of startups in this space, including Wobot. Hey, by the way, if you're trying to find Wobot, it's woe as in troubles, W-O-E-B-O-T. I don't think there's much law out there and probably not a lot of cases about people suing uh, uh, when the bad happens. Is that your thought? Yeah, that's absolutely right. And uh, not a lot of cases is putting it generously. I, I would say probably zero is the, the number that are out there now. Uh, it's, it's a, yeah, remarkable, there's a remarkable dearth uh, of data on that sort of application. Now. And maybe that's good news in a way if you think these things are mostly positive because it, it means that we know that suicide is very hard to predict, and that's, I think, what we're all most scared of. Uh, but we know there's actually relatively few suits, and we know there's relatively few suits because we'd start seeing some of them. And, and, <clears throat> excuse me, when I talk to people that are in the risk management business, that is, they're insurers or self-insurers like Stanford, I'm getting the same impression. So the good news is people aren't suing. Of course, the first suit could be for $100 million, and then that wouldn't be such good news. I mean, one of the other things is, in addition, the other area of law on this is regulation. Um, and, you know, if you want to be a clinical psychologist, you have to be licensed, Right. I mean, you can't just put out a shingle, but I assume for these apps, anybody can put out an app, and as long as they can get one or the other app stores to put it on, or they could put it on the web. Is there any regulation of this? So this is another huge question for the area. Uh, The FDA seems to be the primary player at this point that wants to make sure it's producing the correct oversight, because as Joe mentioned, there's tremendous potential for, you know, growth and assisting, you know, people who are really in need. There's also a lot of potential for abuse uh, and, you know, people sort of, uh, you know, being injured by inappropriate apps. And so they're one of the main players to look to in this space. 
Well, we've been talking here with really three terrific guests, uh, Joe Ruzak, an old colleague of mine, and I say that in the most benign <laughs> way, Joe, because we're both old, uh, uh, Zach Harned and Allison Darcy about digital mental health. And I have the feeling, uh, Pam, we've really only scratched the surface. Yes, but to use a therapist line, our time is up. <laughs> so thank you for joining us on Stanford Legal here on Sirius XM Insight 121. This has been Stanford Legal on Sirius XM Insight. If you missed any of it, listen on demand, online, or with the Sirius XM app.